Welcome back, podcast listeners. We're here with a special guest today in Yardul Nguyen. Um, most of you would have seen her story in the news uh, the last few weeks um, after her amazing speech, but Nyadul is a lawyer, human rights advocate and chair of the Harmony Alliance. She was born in a refugee camp in Ethiopia and raised at another refugee camp in Kenya. In 2005, at the age of 18, she and her family moved as refugees to Australia. Since then, she's done some amazing work in um, having completed a Bachelor of Arts from the Victoria University um, and a doctorate from the University of Melbourne. She's previously worked as a commercial litigation lawyer um, with Arnold Bloch Liebler? Block Liebler. Block Liebler, sorry. And now she's a vocal advocate um, and regular media commentator in human rights and equality for, and for non discrimination. Nadal, uh, welcome. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. I was stumbling there at the end. That's okay. I should mention, though, that I, I stopped working at ABL um, earlier this year. So, yeah. Um, but I don't think there's a point of mentioning where I work right now because sometimes it's important to distinguish between that work and the stuff I do outside that work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think so too in the, yeah. the organisations that you work for as well, being the Harmony Alliance. Yeah, I, I work for uh, Harmony Alliance. That's it. That's uh, as a chair, I chair the organisation. So, um, um, but yeah, some, some of my views align with the, the organisations I work with, some don't. So I'm always careful to... Um, <coughs> mentioned that there's a distinction between what I do professionally and I suppose my advocacy sometimes because advocacy requires a level of independence and uh, sometimes push of of boundaries that um, organizations that have to represent a diversity of voices cannot uh, do Um, so um, so I think I'm here in my role as Nyadu. Now you do have an amazing story and and I sort of want to go back to the start because I think that lays the foundations um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, how far you've come and the amazing work you're doing now. Do you want to tell us about your early childhood and, and the story of coming to Australia? Uh, yeah, sure. I've, I've told this story so many times yeah. now. Um, and um, uh, so I was, born, I was born in a refugee camp in Ethiopia called Litau, and I think I was there until probably no more than when I was five and then um, uh, from that refugee camp my family was displaced back by another war to Sudan and then from Sudan got separated from my mother at some point and ended up in Kalkma refugee camp where I grew up with um, stepmothers and aunties and older sisters and so uh, and I didn't get to meet my mom again until probably uh, my late teens um, sort of mid-teens and didn't get to live with her until uh, my late teens and so so uh, when I met my mother or started living with her again in Kalkuma refugee camp um, around 2000 uh, that would be the first time I was actually uh, kind of forming new memories and getting to know my mother um, again and then we came to Australia in 2005. So she spent roughly 10 years apart from your mother then? I, uh, I, I don't know because I, I really have to sit down with mom and sort of get the dates right. Yeah. I know I was separated from her in Sudan, but I don't know what age I was. I was about four or five. Mm. And then I ended up in Kalkuma refugee camp. Um, and I didn't get to see my mother until probably 96. Okay. Um, when my father was killed in the war. Yeah. And so she came for a visit. I saw her shortly. She returned back to Ethiopia. And um, from, I think, then then she, we, we started living together in, 90, in 2000. So... Um, 
most of that time, most of my, uh, so I'll say from about when I was four or five, maybe six, the oldest, until uh, 15 or 16, I didn't, I didn't leave with mum. Okay, so you're the second oldest in the family, is that correct? Yes, I yeah, am. You have I'm an older a, sister? I have an older sister, I'm, yeah. I'm one of eight. Okay, so did you then, um, I'm assuming, not meet a lot of your younger siblings until your mid-teens as well, is that right? Or? Uh, yeah, so uh, I would have known my little, my elder, older sister and I think my younger sister was, was oh, just so born. Oh, so you with your older sister? No, no. Okay, so, so I was the only one among my siblings that lived away from mum. Okay, yeah. Um, and that's what war does, you know, it just yeah. creates this chaotic situation where you're displaced and and I know so many friends who unlike me have never been lucky enough to meet their parents now, you know, yeah. and they're going into twenty years or so so I was lucky to have not only met my mum and to have started living with her again, but also I had a chance of going back to Ethiopia and meeting my grandma after twenty years separation. So that was really was really um empowering and also a, a really important um Thing for me, and and I think you know, two or three years later, we lost her, so it was was just in time to see her. Yeah, right. Mm. Good so, so you then came here at the age of eighteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was eight of you and your mum, I believe. Is that correct? Uh, so one of my brothers was born here. The youngest was okay, born yeah. here. So it was seven of us and two uncles and mum. So okay, that, yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. So quite a big, big, and we and we, um, the ten of us uh, ended up in a three-bedroom house in. Uh, and the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, southeastern suburb of Melbourne. Yeah. And um, so all the girls shared one room, all the boys shared one room, and mum had the one room with the little kids. Yeah. Um, and so that's how we started off. Um, I used to remember having to walk to school just because sometimes we didn't have enough money. Yeah. Um, but it didn't really seem like such a big deal because... In a way, I used to walk for an hour or so just to get to school in Kakuma in the in really suffocating heat. So the idea that I could walk 20, 30 minutes to school here in Australia just seems like a walk in the park, perspective-wise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have to say I haven't got used to the to the cold um, <laughs> so I've long after most of my life, and I still haven't got used to the cold. Yeah. <laughs> so it's um, no. So, so so you were eighteen when you came here. Mm-hmm. So how? I mean, you've you've studied. You're a lawyer, uh, doctor, a doctorate at Melbourne University. A Juris doctorate. A juris I'm not doctorate. sure. If it's, I think okay, do- doctorate so might be like lifting it a bit higher than okay, me. So it's um, <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll get that part correct. But but in saying that though, you've come here at the age of 18. How did you find education and then going into study law, coming here so late in life? Uh, I suppose mm. you, would, you wouldn't have had that same formal education that um, back in the camps at that time compared to, say, what they have here in Australia? I think the education system is different, but I think I did have a formal education okay, in the, the camp. So yeah. I, I, the Kakuma, because Kakuma was in Kenya and, and historically Kenya was colonised by the British. Yes. So in a way, the language of, of instruction in school in Kenya is English. Okay then, yeah. And I started primary school there in the camp, finished all my high school in the camp. I did spend some time out of the camp in yeah. Kenya. Yeah. Um, but um, so I was lucky in that way that I, I not only had a st- structured education, but I also had a structured education delivered in English. Yes. So it meant that when I came here, I was better situated than 
um, some of my friends who came from Egypt or Ethiopia and had you know gone through school through Arabic or Amharic, so it was different. Yeah. But it didn't. But it was definitely um, um, something to get used to um, because. Attitudes are different here. Attitudes towards teachers were different. Mm. Uh, the nature of relationships is different. You know, yeah. in Kenya, it was much more strict. You couldn't speak back to a teacher. Whereas sometimes there are certain classes that I found hard here to even listen to what the teachers was because everyone was just talking and shouting and sort of had, um, I was going to say a little respect, but it just seems like they were just more independent and could do what they want. Where in Kenya, everyone sat down and you kept quiet and you listened and yeah. it was, it was the, the relationship was very strict. Yes. Um, so I was oh, when I went to school. Well, <laughs> so, so I sat through many lectures as well where, yeah, the respect's not there to listen to what's going on up front. Yeah, mm. and I really, I think culturally I, I struggled with that, but I also, I also found it interesting in that I think there was, in my view, looking back now, I think there was a lot of low expectations of us, particularly the young people from refugee background, uh, that's, low expectations that were projected as because we just came from a refugee camp there was just water that we wouldn't cope with the nature of the study so there was this rules like you couldn't do a certain subject until you've been here for seven years which is bizarre okay. um, so I did, yeah. yeah so I you know I was prevented from doing English literature so for example I was really interested in literature I used to read in Kakuma yeah. and I think these perceptions that somehow you would struggle if you were put in certain places and, and having blanket rules for everyone from a refugee background as opposed to seeing what each individual person particular st strength or you know um, limitations were yeah. we just said sort of sometimes there were blank rules that treated us all the same and, and I, th I struggled and I remember getting to the end of um, year and just almost giving up like I, I just didn't even want to be there anymore yeah um, and 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 so I just never I got to a point where I didn't want to try does that happen a lot to refugees in school um, I don't know I don't yeah. know I, I, I I've had friends who have had similar is conversations it, is it, is with it me the same now uh, uh, I don't know, but I know that I've had I've had friends. I've I've got a friend who you know is currently doing a PhD in science. I've yeah. got a friend who is a pharmacist. I've got a friend who you know finished medicine from Melbourne Law uh, Mel Mel Melbourne University, and all of them you know have similar stories of being told they couldn't do this subject, so they couldn't do this, or they couldn't do that because there's a perception that somehow they they would struggle. Yeah, and it was I think a lot of us when we talk about it, there's a frustration because. Even at the time, we felt that our marks didn't reflect that belief. So yeah. it wasn't just so much that they believed because of refugee background that I was going to be disadvantaged. It was the fact that even at that time, even in, in that context, your marks didn't justify the perception they kept insisting on. And it's, it's sort of, you know, th that was quite a... Um, yeah, that, that, was, that was quite an experience. <laughs> Was it was that in a way the first example of not being given the same opportunity in some uh, type of way? It might, might have been not so much uh, racism on the surface as we commonly know racism, yeah. but in a way saying, "Well, we just don't think they will, so we why let them do something?" It, you know. I, I think yes. You know, I, I you know, I, I I think some of it might have come from. A good place where they thought, oh, we just, you know, considering their background, we don't want them to struggle. Uh, 
but I have to say that that has to be one that was one of my first experience of being underestimated yeah you know like and, and, and not in a boastful kind of way but just always feeling as if people expect us less of you yeah and therefore you should expect less of yourself that it was okay for people like you to just get by people like you are not the kind of people that can uh, radically change thing or think about things your your job almost is um I'm here in this space to make you be able to leave, not to thrive, not to change, not to transform. Like it's this, it's almost a caging of what is possible. Um, Yeah. I mean, as you say, it's probably come from a a good place, but a lot of silly things have started coming from a good place. Yeah, you know, I said, I think the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. Yeah, It's so true. I've heard that one before. (laughs) You haven't heard that before? No, I haven't. No, it is. it's It's a very true saying. Yeah, statement. So, so what, what drove you to become a lawyer and follow that path of study? Um, so I have to say that after, after my experience in, in, in that space, I remember thinking, I'm not good enough to be a lawyer. I'm never going to be a lawyer. Yep. Um, and I really did take in some of those, um, whatever they were, whether they were stereotypes or they were, the, they were views, I, I did take them in. And, I, and that's why I thought, I'm just going to do a Bachelor of Arts. I'm never going to be good enough to be a lawyer. And there was a day, and this is where Maria comes in, there was a day Maria and I were driving from Shepparton yeah. and we were just talking in the car and she said, you know, you, you've got really good analytical skills. You should really think about doing law. And also just meeting other people that began to assist me to see myself differently from the perceptions and the beliefs that had, I had now kind of personalized about my ability. And so I applied to Melbourne Law School and I believed 100% I wasn't going to get in. Okay. You know? So I I didn't think I was going to get in at all. So um, and I was surprised that I did. Yeah. Mm. So it was somebody well, good people who saw your talents, encouraging you that I suppose opened up your mind in some some way. Yeah. 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 And and I think we're we're all different. I think some people. Um, some people are very good to gather their own internal resources and just push forward. Um, but um, I've always. Uh, not always, but you know, uh, it, it's been useful to have people in my life who who saw things before I could see them, mm. um, because it always um, it acted as sort of a, a counterweight to your own internal negative voice. You know, yeah. when you could have someone else back it up, it wasn't just you who thought you could do it; someone else thought you could do it too. And those two added together make you a little bit believe that it was possible. Yeah. Um, and also, I think there's uh, there is part of it that is a character characteristic straight in some way in that the more someone underestimates me the more there is just a challenge that I'm going to prove you wrong I know that feeling yeah <laughs> yeah, um, yeah so in a way tell me I can't do it and I'll prove I can yeah, yeah, yeah. and so I think for me there is a there's a part of me that slightly enjoy being underestimated yeah um because it means you don't know what's coming no, that's uh, it, it, it is so true, but it, isn't it? It's important. A lot of people don't have it nowadays at all, and a lot of people just in general. And I, mm. um, but the don't have self belief. Uh, and self belief, if you do have self belief, that's that is magnificent and really helps you in a long way. But to have somebody actually believe in you and be able to, yeah. as you say, show you something is even more important than in some ways than self-belief. I really because, think so. Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's having that person in your corner, as they say. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I, th I think um, we all, I mean, nobody gets through this world alone. And I truly believe that nobody is self-made. Mm. Um, and I don't think I'm self-made. I think I've made by a lot of people generosities. Absolutely. And their gift of time and yeah. their advice. And sometimes their beliefs and the things that I have done today that were purely because someone else thought I could do it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the encouragement, the posit mm. positive encouragement and really can drive optimism. Mm. You know, so it's uh, so every time you do look at beating yourself up, having that person in the corner, uh, letting you know it'll be okay. Mm -hmm. It's just so important as well. It's just so important. Now, you've done a lot of, I guess, commentary and, and you know, a lot of advocacy work. Um, there was the uh, speech that you did, I think, around two, three weeks ago. Um, and what stood out was... At the press club. Yeah, yeah, and what stood out to me was um, obviously that message you were sent by the serving police officer and, and that changed your views on how you see Australia and how you felt safe here. Um, mm. Do you want to touch on that? Yeah, but that wasn't the first. Um, <clears throat> I, I got... I started really... Um, <sighs> this is an interesting one. Um, I got abused quite a lot on social media. Yeah. Racist abuse, sexist abuse, sometimes both combined, um, for expressing views that, in my view, are actually not that controversial in, in any way. Um, so I remember even when I shared that, that message of the police officer, because that message has to be understood through a particular context, because I don't know what I'd done. Oh, I had gone on Q&A. Yes. And, um, and I talked about indigenous death in custody and uh, some far-right guy with a large following um, known for harassing people both physically um, and otherwise uh, went and created a video and completely misquoted everything I had said and so and and then encouraged his, his viewers to um, to essentially send me a series of questions you know so so the way to understand it is because social media started cracking down on direct racist abuse um, they don't do it effectively but they did what some of these groups tended to do was to to then um, use sort of um, voluminous attack that look innocent. So instead of directly calling you racist name, although some of them did, like the police officer, yeah. they just get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to send you messages that then if you report each message, it doesn't look problematic. The problem is the voluminous nature of the um, the attack. Yeah. You know. So that's the method they used to, to, to sort of troll me online. And it was so... It was so intense that um, the e-safety commission, I talked about it at as Senate estimates. Um, um, How many messages do you think you received during that I, time? I, I really can't tell you. Wow. Yeah, I, I had to, um, after that experience, I had to um, restrict a lot of my presence online. So the only platform now online where I exist without ex restrictions is Twitter. Yep. And even there, I, I just avoid certain messages you know so and so I block where, or I mute the worst people are <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but then you know 
anything else is is private yeah um or i try to be very private about it or share certain things privately and i'm more conscious about what i put there about my family or my 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 kids and so that was um and and the police officer abuse i mean i was just having so at that time it didn't even stand out because i was just having so much attacks on my facebook page and they were finding anywhere i was present online they were there um and i um i just out of just sheer exhaustion, I just started sharing them and saying, could you just report this? Because I couldn't report them all. Yeah. I just started sharing on Twitter, could you help me report these people because I cannot do it by myself. And that's how it was picked up that he was a serving police officer. Um, and I recall <laughs> I recall going on his on his profile and just seeing that there was a picture of him with a gun. Yeah. And, I, and that was really traumatizing for me. Yeah. Well, not traumatizing, but it was really triggering for me because... I had been in war. I had seen, you know, like the guns mean something very different. Yes. You know, it's a real threat. And so it felt like a real threat. Um, he apologized, you know, and his partner reached out to me. And sometimes I don't like talking about it because I don't necessarily want to constantly put him on the spotlight. Like yeah. I think he should move on with his life and his family should move on with his life. Um, but the language that's used in here is just horrendous. Oh, but it, you know, so it's so funny because when I say that, people say it's horrendous. But I'm like, ah, you have no idea. Like someone wrote on a picture of my kid something like, "You kill it." Like so. So I've had all kinds of truly horrible abuse. I've seen it. I've seen it. I can tell you, I've seen it all. There is no part of my life that I feel hasn't been attacked, diminished, dehumanized in some ways. Um, I can so. tell you that my 82-year-old mother would give me a good smack across the ear if she ever heard words like that come out of my mouth. Mm. It was, uh, even, even, you know, only about three or four years ago, you know, there were some young kids on a tram swearing their heads off and she got up and wagged her crooked arthritic mm. index finger at them and really let rip at them mm. um, about just having no ass. And they actually all apologised and just sat down. <laughs> so it's, uh, that's my mum. She doesn't know when to back down at times. But... This coming from anybody, never mind a serving police officer, is just horrendous. And Nova Paris, who was here yesterday uh, presenting to our staff and a bunch of people, she showed some examples of the racial abuse she got when she um, became a senator uh, in the federal Labor government. And it was just absolutely horrendous once again. And these were... These weren't unemployed. Uh, that's the that's the other they, thing. They, like they, they, you know, this guy owned his own business. Was a chiropractor, you know. So and, and it's just like yeah. It, it, the, the, but that's the thing. Yeah. When I looked online, because yeah. I tried to look online at some of the people that were attacking me, even they were. You know, some of them were. Some of them had pictures of their children on them. Yeah. Some of them were firefighters. Yeah. Some of them, like these were normal people. These were not people that. These were normal people. These you are know, like with jobs, right, nah, nah, anything like that. Nah. Yeah, these are, and I think yeah. that I don't know. Your your heart sink to a different level when mm. you can see someone. And I remember asking one of them just out of curiosity. You know, she had pictures of her children. I said, like. You've got pictures of your kids on on here. Like you've you've got all your information here. Mm. If I was just a nasty person, I could just take the screenshot of what they've done yeah. and send them to your work. Yeah. You know, like it's yeah. it didn't make sense. And and also and also what they were buying to was completely false. Mm. And yeah. so part of you felt as though part of me understand that a lot of the people that kind of participated in that 
we're just helping another person make his back because this kind of far right guy that's how he's make his money that's how he makes his name that's how he monetize yeah. his hate yeah and so those people that might have their own anxieties but don't share necessarily his belief yeah. would feel that they can they can attack you now but they're just really part of a big operation that they have nothing so for example take this police officer he ended up getting investigated this guy keep doing it the guy that got him to send me this message still does his thing and yeah. still earn his money yeah. well he now his name is constantly going to come up yeah. in this space for what yeah. you know yeah well he he just saw a video believed in it and send me a, send me a message you know so it's it's really it's, you kind of almost in some ways feel a bit sad for them because mm. it's one thing for them to truly believe in those things it's another thing for them to be used as part of someone else's just agenda agenda and mm. that's a lot of them were just serving someone agenda that they really don't know and you know i don't want to go so much into this guy background that did the video but uh, you know as nova would say like what they're trying to do with the kind of attacks and abuse and i have to also say something else is that he didn't get to attack me until someone in the mainstream media attacked me so okay. it's an ecosystem that works together yeah. so someone in the mainstream media in sky news does something misquotes you then they then the kind of the harder far rights pick that up yeah and they take it to the extreme. Yeah. So they they all exist in the same ecosystem. So I don't think he would have attacked me. It did not been created first of all. Had had you not been pointed out mm. as an element for attack in part of the mainstream media. Yeah. So that's the other th- that's the other part of it that I think is important is that. And so for me, that's one of the reason why I don't necessarily. I'm not as much concerned about some of those comments mm. because you can block them and you can delete them. But I cannot block someone. In mainstream media, I cannot delete someone in the mainstream media. They can continue to misquote me, and they can continue to then expose me to this extreme sort of abuse constantly for the rest how, of my time. How here. much effort goes into when you're writing something, or, or you know that you're about to have a speech? Do you, are you concerned about what's going to be misquoted? Is is there a lot of time and energy put into what you're going to say? Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Like you know, you constantly have to think about. Yeah, you have to think every single sentence here can be misconstrued. Yeah. And and it could definitely I mean you have to remember like this country hounded out a Muslim young woman, literally hounded her out of this country because of a tweet. You could disagree with that tweet fundamentally. You could disagree with the message fundamentally. But the idea that the same people that will tell you that migrants and refugees and black people should just take racist abuse because it's free speech could not stand a tweet that they wrote thousands and thousands and thousands of words and bullied this young girl until she had to leave this country. You know, so you've got to, <laughs> it's just, I mean, the, the, the hypocrisy is, is always interesting to me, but, you know, um, they get away with it. But so, yeah, you, you think about, you think about that, you think about, you think about it about every tweet you write. Yeah. You think, is this the tweet that is going to get me handled out of the country? Is this the yep. tweet that is going to be taken out of context? You think about it and, you know, so it's fascinating to me that on, particularly on, on the far, on some, the, the far right and the right, there's this argument about cancel culture and whatever. And you think you're canceling people all the time. Like, it's just so fascinating on one end to me, but on the other end, it's, it, it creates a very sensitive space to exist and to think and to, and to, and to you know, speak honestly about things. But as much as I would think about it, 
I would also try as hard as possible to not let them to not let fear change what I'm going to say. Yeah. yeah. You know. Uh so I'm careful about about you know in the end sometimes they might say things that you might want to take in and review your position because um it's useful to think yep. about what other other people's perspectives are. You're not always right. Um but sometimes it's just total BS and I'm you know I'm going to be afraid but I'm still going to say what I want to say. Yeah. 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 It's interesting you say that because if you take Maria and myself uh, we've often had some wonderful discussions that realistically have never gone into a debate but we're still the absolute best of friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know so it's um, and it is it is really interesting as you're saying yeah, if when things are done, and I suppose what I've always said to my children as well is that if you're going to have a debate, debate with actual facts. Mm. Uh, don't debate with emotion. Uh, so if you're going to, if you uh, have emotion, but mm. you know, but but if you're what you're stating is factually correct and not just one little part of an entire fact, uh, mm. you know, then then you can actually have an open debate. And it was interesting watching Q and A the other a few weeks ago when Hannah was actually on it, and I thought, oh, this would be interesting to see how Hannah and Tom Elliott uh, mm. go with each other, and it was probably one of the best Q&A sessions I'd seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. It was just so respectful. Uh, Hannah spoke openly about being a business owner and how lockdowns have affected her, but how the fact that no government has a plan uh, and she didn't just go after one. Tom Elliott totally agreed with her. And it was just it was just wonderful seeing two people on different spectrums of, say, political bias uh, but actually come together and the way they actually presented it was for the good of the community. And yeah. I actually thought, I, I sent Hannah a text afterwards and said that was absolutely tremendous. Um, yeah, I think, I yeah. think you know, I don't... I think there's space now... I, I don't think there's a lot of spaces now for sensible debates. I yeah. think there's a lot of entrenched positions and and for someone like me whether I like it or not I'm not I'm not controversial because of the things I say most of the time I'm controversial because of the things I say and the way I look you know yeah like I've I've done this trick before where I have just paraphrased something that someone on the same panel as me has said and see what the reactions would all be yeah you know and I, the reactions are always different because of the color of your skin yeah and you just have to accept it you just have to accept that because some people position is that anyone who looks like me who come to this country from a refugee background the only thing they should ever say is be grateful because this country has quote-unquote given you everything Mm. You know, the idea that somehow I could also say, yes, thank you for what you've given me, but there's part of it that I'm also not really happy about. Like that, it's really confronting for some people. Yeah. And and they think that because you say that, it's because you hate the country or you don't really have a true appreciation of your position there. You know, and, and they impose it with their own fears and their own insecurities, which to mm. me, I'm always thinking, the full spectrum is li- of life is that there's some really good things and some really bad things. Absolutely. That's the yeah. full story, and that's the and story I'm interested mo- in you've, saying. But you've actually seen that firsthand more than the vast majority of people that live in this country from growing up in a war-torn country and in a refugee camp. Yeah, you've, you've perhaps, ex- you've yeah. Ex- you've experienced it far worse than uh, what most people here could ever imagine. I mean, 
I, I know my parents' story, but I never lived my parents' yeah. story. You've lived it, you know, so your children will know your story, but, you know, yeah, they, they, know. they, they yeah. haven't had to live it, but they will know no differently than, you know, I know my parents' story and things like that. And there's lots of people like that, but it is interesting how a lot of people will make comments without having lived your life. Yeah. Another thing I find really fascinating when people call me a victim, <laughs> you know, I just, I just think that's like, well, it's it's kind of interesting that the idea that you would complain, people could assume that somehow you're trying to be an, a victim. I just think, I don't know how you come to a country at 18 year old, you try to finish a law degree and another degree in a second language while working two to three jobs sometimes and and having and, young and, you know, children yeah and having young children doing volunteer work and, yeah, on top and, of that as yeah. well so it's it's kind so of on it's top a, of the two to three jobs <laughs> you know so you do a lot of volunteer work as so. well so, so I, I mean that just tells you you're not going to win with some people no yeah yeah and mm. uh, yeah so you're I'll touch on the fact that you've done, uh, you do believe in human rights, which I think most people think they believe in it, but don't necessarily understand it. Uh, but you do a hell of a lot uh, for the community as well. Uh, Harmony Alliance being one part, you chair the Harmony Alliance, uh, which I thought your appointment following on from Maria was just absolutely sensational that's another thing as well i never would have gone for that position maria suggested it so <laughs> i think i mean talking about people seeing you into positions or into things into places that's another example where it didn't even cross my mind to 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 do oh, when it. maria told me and we hadn't even met at that time but when maria told me that you're the new chair i thought oh, who better <laughs> no, so it's uh you know and we hadn't even met as I said yeah. at that time, so I only knew about you, didn't actually know you. So it was, it's interesting then to go to that next step, though, if you think of the Harmony Alliance, which is an absolutely beautiful name, but it's supporting refugee women mm. um, and supporting them to you know, help them in general terms of, I suppose, assimilation in one aspect of life. Uh, mm. But just giving them that support, which I, I think is tremendous. Uh, do you want to touch on that? Yeah, the work of Harmony Alliance is really interesting and it's and it's broad. It's mm. broad. But I think the core aspect of it is to try and, and advocate for migrant and refugee women um, and try to get their voices and their concerns and their views Absolutely. into rooms and spaces that normally they will they will not be heard. Yeah. Um so so that's really the core the core aspect of Harmony Alliance. Yeah. yeah. And it's done so success successfully well. We would like to think so. Yeah, yeah. No, there's. Yeah. Um, it just seems it seems to be one group that is not attacked by mainstream media or social media. Oh. Well, not that I've noticed anyway. I hope so. You yeah. know, I think one of my worries when I was going to take the role was because I didn't want it to be because you know I get attacked. I don't necessarily want the organisations I work with or even um, you know things I do on social media like make sure my family don't follow me or mm. if they do that you know so it's just i did see your son say you know mama when you're on tv that was, that was beautiful good. that was, that <laughs> that was, that was, that was just a, that was a highlight yeah. <laughs> how old is he is it's gonna is two and a half yeah that was just beautiful he's like mm. mama <laughs> so it's on tv so that that was absolutely beautiful uh, to see that so so um, with with then moving forward i mean what is it that you are still going to continually strive for um, you know, in Australia, what, what, what are, where is it for you moving forward now? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, you have so much to give, <laughs> and you do such amazing work. Um, you know, so what's the old saying? Haters will be haters. And then it's I like, think. I think what know, I think. You do so much work for to bring out. Uh, where equality should be, not where it should be. Just isn't this a good idea? But where it actually should be. Yeah. Yeah. I think going forward, mm. um, at the moment, I am really in a space of uh, two places. One is to retreat, and the other is to try and keep doing what I'm doing. So there is a real tension in my life at the moment, mm. and I really do want to step away and step back. As you mentioned, I've got two small children. Yeah. Um, I work full time, and then I do volunteering, mm. which is sometimes feel like three full-time jobs altogether yeah and it's exhausting and i you know i I don't know um i don't know how long i want to do this for yeah Um, and i think part of me gets gets get to do it because you're passionate and you're concerned and and perhaps to some degree you appear good in it but it, it's work all of it is work um and so there is a part of me that wants to step away and go for long walks and read books and write and play with my children and not have the bolts and the rest attack me on social media. Like, yeah. you know, um, and then there's a part of me that want to resist that and keep going because we are all entitled to this space. We are all entitled to having a voice and to debating and to feeling as if we can experience and explore the full range of our citizenship and belonging in this country. And it's, it's just not something that is is saved for a group of people mm. to be able to do it comfortably without risk. Yeah. So, so there's a part of me that wants to do that. And I haven't yet resolved that tension. Yeah. Um, so that's why at the moment, I don't know. I think, though, there's no doubt in whichever way you choose to go, uh, it'll always be for the betterment of everyone else as well. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, yeah. I think that's that's an absolute standout. Agree. Yeah, an absolute standout. I mean, uh, and if if we can sort of close on one thing, as I've said to you previously, the only disappointing thing I find in you is the fact that your brother has got drafted to Richmond rather than Essendon. But yeah. Uh, that aside, that aside, I think you do amazing stuff. But if we could influence him and get him across the Western, I'm happy. I'm we happy where he is. <laughs> I have to say, I think the feeling is mutual. I, I found the fact that you support Essendon very disappointing. Um, but you know what? No, but nobody's perfect. Not on that one. Yeah. I'm a big fan. Do you have any questions? No, that that's it for me. Um, I really appreciate your time coming in, um, and it's been wonderful to hear your story. Thank you. And we're looking forward to working with you for many decades to come. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.